It is Tuesday, and I am staring at a recorder that is on top of a stack of books, um, a stack of books that I used for seminary um, that I no longer use, <laughs> but they're big and they're impressive, and they can hold a microphone. Um, so I want to talk about uh, change, um, and I want to talk about uh, a praying through change, because this whole series that we're doing uh, is all based upon prayer. It's all based upon our ideas about prayer. Kind of the tagline we've been going with is the way that we talk to God shapes our ideas about God. Um, and the way we talk to each other shapes our ideas about each other. And so uh, all of this is not just about the, the rich tradition of prayer in which we communicate with God, but it's also what does it mean to communicate and have conversations with each other? Um, something that is becoming uh, like less and less and less in our world is just the art of good conversation. Um, having conversations that you can disagree in and that you don't have to leave wanting to kill the other person. Conversations that, uh, that can enrich your lives because the other person has a drastically different point of view. Um, so with this, I want to talk through what might be the most important element of our lives, uh, which is change. And to do that, we need to start with Mr. Pokey. Um, <laughs> there was a visual cue for this on Sunday, but you're just going to have to imagine this in your head, and it's probably going to be way more glorious anyway. But Mr. Pokey is um, a hedgehog, uh, and he's a hedgehog that is a much-celebrated hedgehog uh, in the Instagram universe. He has over 1.3 million followers. Um, he's often known to wear little gloves and socks. He has tiny teddy bears. He takes pictures uh, next to beaches, and his arms are kind of always stretched out, and his face is adorable. Um, and for my wife, Chelsea, Mr. Pokey is far and away uh, her favorite Instagram follow. Uh, there are times in our household where things will come to a screeching halt, and I'll hear from the other room, like, oh my gosh, and I'll think, oh, someone, something's gone terribly wrong, and I'll run in there, um, and it's just Chelsea looking at her phone, and she'll exclaim, you have to see this picture of Mr. Pokey. So Mr. Pokey is a legend in our household, and on Friday of last week, uh, we got an update um, that said Mr. Pokey was not feeling well. And so Chelsea ran into the room and said, we need to pray for Mr. Pokey. And I laughed and then realized it was a dead serious request. So we prayed for Mr. Pokey uh, right then and there. And then the next morning, I got up and out of bed, uh, go get a glass of water, and I hear uh, just sort of an inner dialogue. Chelsea said out loud, oh, I wonder how Mr. Pokey's doing. And I hear her kind of click open the phone. And then uh, we got the saddest news ever. Uh, and she said, oh, no, he's, he's, he's died. Um, and I came back into the room and Chelsea was just like weeping, like I'm talking like ugly crying. And so being, um, an enterprising young man, I thought to myself, well, there's two options here. I can film this <laughs> and it can go viral very, very quickly. Um, teacher cries over Mr. Pokey, uh, was my running title. But anyway, and then the other second thing that I could do, uh, as a pastor was I asked her, Hey, Chelsea, can I use this in my sermon? <laughs> And she went, no, uh, obviously not. She's, she's crying and it's not, that's the worst request in the whole world. Uh, but then she goes, well, what, what are you talking about on Sunday? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about uh, ways that we can pray through change and how change is just really hard for people. And then with just the most like dignified, like voice in the world, she just replied, then yes, you can. <laughs> so change, we begin with Mr. Pokey, we're going to go all over the place. We've got quotes from John O'Donohue. We've got uh, a Bible verse that isn't actually a Bible verse. Uh, we've got a story about snakes. 
Um, and then we're going to end with a story about an author named Spencer Johnson. So that's where we're headed. But I want to just pray even um, as I stare at this recorder. Because uh, we, need, we need a little bit of God. Uh, we need a whole lot of God in this to make this work. So let's pray. Lord, I pray even now as I'm... Um, as I'm, you know, just recording this, uh, people are in their cars or on a run or doing dishes or um, doing it, whatever it is they do where they have time uh, to actually listen to a sermon or to a podcast. And um, God, I, I pray over this time. I pray that you'd make it sacred and holy and meet us wherever we are. Um, we recognize that you are moving through all things and we're just kind of catching up to that. So um, as we talk about change, God, I pray that you would uh, you'd be with us, you'd be with me, and that we would have an awesome time doing it. Amen. Uh, so uh, my one of my favorite new obsessions is a, a theologian and poet named John O'Donohue. Um, John O'Donohue is an Irishman, um, and he actually passed away just a couple of years ago. Um, but through this kind of spiritual development stuff I've been doing over the past few months, his name has just come up over and over and over again. He's kind of like the, the poster child um, for formation. Uh, and so I've been reading a lot of his books, and, and one of them, and it came up in a couple of his writings and texts, is just this amazing sort of story he tells um, where he's like, everybody in the whole world is just one phone call away from their world changing completely. Um, and he talks about just being an adult and having like 50 gazillion things to do. You can't even find time to do the dishes or anything like that. And all of a sudden you get a phone call that maybe one of your loved ones is sick or is, is, has died or has passed away. I mean, it's, it's just tragic news of any sort or any kind, or maybe it's even, it's even good news, like you, you just got that promotion, or, oh my gosh, so-and-so is having a child. You know, these, these kind of life moments. Uh, and before you hang up the phone, before your, your finger even hits that end button, you're standing in a different world. The world that you once knew, the world that was so concrete around you, now looks and feels completely different because change has entered into it. It's a new world that you're standing in. And the problem is we try so hard to create our own new worlds. <laughs> and really, they can't be manufactured all that well. We can do it. We can do it a little bit. In fact, this is what advertising does so well. And this is why we buy things so often. Because we truly do believe that whatever product we're buying or anything that we're consuming is going to create a new world for us. If we get that car right? If we get that car, you know what I'm talking, that car, then once we have that car, we're going to be living in a new world. It's going to change our entire lives. Even as stupid as something like going on Amazon and ordering something off of Amazon Prime, as soon as I click that button and I realize that it's going to be two days before I see whatever item I've just bought, I think like, well, in two days, my life is going to be drastically better because that box is going to show up on my door, right? We try to manufacture our own kind of new worlds and everything, but the truth is, those aren't really lasting things. They're not, they're, they're our own identity markers. They're the kind of ego that we build up for ourselves, but they're not a lasting new world. They're not an actual different world. Um, one of the first things we build for ourselves, in fact, the very first identity that we build for ourselves is this idea of shame. Um, if you go to the first book in the Bible, open up the Bible, table of contents is there, and you'll see the first book is Genesis. And Genesis is our origin story. It's, it's, it's our beginning uh, and first introduction to God. 
And so I'm always fascinated when I go through the Genesis story with all the first, all the first impressions. This is the first impression that God wants to leave upon humanity. And so the choices that he makes, the first line, let there be light, the first, the first thing that he speaks, that is, is let there be light. Why is that the first sentence that God utters? Maybe it's because that light, that idea of light is awareness, and it's always awareness if you're reading through the Bible. When you see the word light, just slap awareness in its stead, and you're going to see crazy stuff. Because basically, let there be light is a, is a declaration. The first impression you're getting of God is that he wants to make you aware of things like you've never been before. That's where we get the term enlightened. It means we're coming awake. And that's what God does. The very first thing he says is, let there be light. And so if that's the very first thing that he says, the, what's even more interesting is Jesus is uh, known for asking questions. He's sort of a master questionnaire. Whenever people ask him questions, it's usually a question fired right back or a story. In fact, scholars look and they think there's really only three times that Jesus directly answers a question with a yes or no answer. Three times. And yet there are just dozens of examples of this Jesus throwing questions right back, throwing stories right back. We call them parables. He, he's, he's always pushing us to try and answer the questions or lead us to brand new questions we never thought were there. So if God's first statement is let there be light, what's God's first question? And the crazy cool part about this is that God's first question is where are you? Where are you? Uh, it, it says uh, in Genesis, this is right after Adam and Eve have eaten the, the fruit and they've bit into the, the whole thing and now we're, we're screwed for eternity. But anyway, he, they eat it uh, and they in instantly look at each other and realize that they are naked. Um, and again, when we see light, we should, we should look at that. It's like an awareness sort of a thing. And when you see naked in the scripture, we should kind of look at that as, as you could insert the word shame in there and it would work just as well. Um, nakedness was entirely shameful and in fact the weird part was uh, the shame was actually on you so if if you saw someone naked uh, you were shamed <laughs> not the person who was naked um, which is a really interesting cultural flip uh, but anyway um, the first thing they do is they look at each other and they say oh no we're naked and so they try and clothe themselves with fig leaves um, and they hide and so it says God is walking in the cool of the day which uh, if, if we've talked about light as being something else and, and nakedness being something else, cool of the day, like walking in the cool of the day, just just picture God in a robe just sauntering through the garden. Like it, it, He's not a rushed God at this point. There's no anger in here. There's, there's almost a stroll, a saunter. He's, he's walking through the cool of the day. And his very first question that God speaks, the very first question that God speaks to all of humanity is, where are you? And Adam uh, replies, uh, we've, we've hid, Lord, because we, we found out we were naked. And so the second question that, that God asks all of humanity, if the first one is, where are you? The second question he asked is, who told you you were naked? In other words, who told you to be ashamed? Or even further, who told you that? So we've got, where are you? And who told you that? These are the very first questions that God asks all of humanity, and I think he hasn't stopped asking us those questions. When we find ourselves standing in that new world, that different world, when our reality 
changes because a sentence has completely flipped our world upside down. I think the most helpful thing in the world that we can do is remember that God's asking you constantly, where are you and who told you that? (laughs) Where are you and who told you that? Because very often we can just convince ourselves, and shame is super good at this, we can convince ourselves that we are in a certain place and success is the same. So you could do this on the, on the point of like failure, hurt, pain, or you could do it on success, joy, happiness. Both of those have the power to convince ourselves that we are in a situation that's never going to change, right? That, that somehow we are completely secure where we are because either well, we were really secure in that failure because, man, this is the worst situation in the whole world, or we're totally secure in the success and this joy because look at what we've built. Look at how much we've got, right? Both of those worldviews leave little room to let God's two ultimate questions into our lives. And that's that, where are you and who told you that? (laughs) We're experiencing hurt and pain. Where are you? Well, I'm in this awful valley moment of my life and it it hurts. And then I follow up like, who told you that? Who told you that? I didn't tell you that. <laughs> That's the beauty of this Adam and Eve story is God's basically going like, who told you you're naked? Like, that didn't come from me. That's something you chose to put on yourself. It's something you chose to believe. And the same thing with the success stuff. You know, we can be riding high on our successes and then all of a sudden, um, you know, that ultimate question can come through and it can say, where are you? Say, look, I've built all of this. Look at all this joy, all of this happiness, all of this success. And God's same question as the follow-up could be, well, who told you that? Who told you that? Don't get so comfortable because, like, that's not that. I didn't tell you that. I think if there's anyone that, that uh, has built their own identity and the, the perfect kind of um, archetype for this, this kind of individual happens in the scriptures. Uh, and he's known in some gospel texts as the rich young ruler. Sometimes he's just referred to as the rich man. Um, the passage I'm going to read, uh, which is out of the NIV, and it's Mark 10, 17 through 27, um, he's simply uh, described as the rich. <laughs> so he's, he's defined, even in the scripture, not by his name, uh, but by a title, by saying, like, no, this is, this is a very rich man. That's what we're supposed to know from the beginning. So this is Mark 10, 17 through 27. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So right here, we just in that verse in 17, um, the crazy thing about this text is that we talked about like the honor and the shame stuff just earlier with the nakedness thing. But shame um, was something that was measured in this time. And it wasn't just measured like in a like kind of haphazard way. There were like quantifiable ways to measure shame. And in the same way, there were quantifiable ways to measure honor. Certain things that you did, actions that you did, would either bring honor or they would bring shame. Um, And for a man in this culture, uh, to especially one that's of this wealthy status, we already know this is a rich person, uh, to be running is an inherently shameful act. Uh, which is kind of crazy. Like that that's the way he wants to run up to Jesus. He's going to break sort of honor codes and he's going to run 
and he's people are going to be measuring shame as he approaches so at first we're getting a really cool picture of who this person is it's a person that like understands jesus well enough that he sees that he's not going to care about all the pomp and circumstance and all that pretext and he just runs for it right and you would think based upon everything we've seen uh, in Jesus, especially in this book of Mark, like we're in chapter 10 now. If you go like early on, we're seeing Jesus breaking all sorts of rules. Um, But Jesus doesn't really, you'd think that that Jesus would be excited that this man has has broken that and ran up to him, but that's really not the case. So the next, the next verse 18, we'll pick up back up here. It says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except for God alone. So, it seems that even though this man had had run and kind of embraced this sort of radical Jesus stuff, uh, he also is asking the wrong questions. <laughs> so he comes up and he asks a question that, that obviously Jesus is not having because he just kind of goes like, why are you calling me good? Who are you? Uh, who, where are you and who told you that? Uh, he's he's kind of shaming the guy and saying like, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And then he answers this question. In verse 19, he says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he says, Teacher, he declared, All of these things I have kept since I was a boy. And this is where Jesus' mood sort of shifts and, and, and he looks at him in compassion. In verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so you have to keep in mind, this is something that Jesus is saying in love to this man. Not, there's no more like, why do you call me good? This is now, he sees him and he loves him and that this is what he's going to speak into his life as he loves him. He says, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And I just, I love the way that the scripture kind of describes that because there's not even a, there's not even a verbal response. It's just, it's that moment you're in conversation with someone and, and you see you've said something that's really got them and their face just falls. And then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we see a guy who, who is so wrapped up in his, his world, right? The world that he has either worked for or inherited. We're not sure. Like, we don't know his story. But what we do know is that he has found himself in a world that he is extremely comfortable in. Uh, And so what he's looking for is, I have this world that I've built here. It's fine. It's neat and tidy. His question to Jesus, the the bad question, (laughs) is what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking Jesus, like, in a sense, I've got this one figured out what do I need to do to get over there? What do I need to do to have that figured out so that I can have the same kind of comfort and the same kind of success in that world as I've had in this one? And Jesus' response is, you know the commandments, right? You, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He just kind of quickly goes into like the Ten Commandments and just goes and plays the hits, right? And so that's the answer for the eternal, for this man. He gives that answer. But then when Jesus changes his tune and starts speaking out of love, 
he doesn't just talk about what's coming next, but he starts talking about, okay, well, if you want that eternal life and if you want it to start right now, I'm, I can give you this new world, right? I can change the entire world you're living in, but here's what you need to do. You need to let go of the world that you built for yourself. So all of that wealth that you define yourself by, just get rid of it. Get rid of it. I'm offering you that eternal life right now, right here. And Jesus would refer to this as the kingdom. It's always talking about this new reality that's absolutely at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, which means like you can live this stuff right now. And in this series of prayer, we've been going back to the Lord's Prayer almost every single week because that's sort of our template uh, in this conversation series and in and in prayer in general. And the, the first line, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So even in our prayers, we're just trying to make the place we're in now look more like heaven. In a sense, it's, it's, it's ushering for us, it's an invitation for us to enter in to what's going on in the eternal right here and right now and create new worlds all over the place. But this guy can't hear that. He just cannot hear that kind of change, and so he can't follow it. There's a, a verse in the Bible that's very famous, uh, and it's not actually in the Bible. <laughs> it's called, uh, This Too Shall Pass. This Too Shall Pass. If you Google This Too Shall Pass, which I'm going to do because I'm at a computer right now, um, you're going to get all sorts of, look, There's it says uh, top 10 Bible verses, um, This Too Shall Pass origin story, This Too Shall Pass uh, bumper stickers. We've got, we've got poems. We've got, oh, oh there's one uh, here. You can get a t-shirt with this too shall pass. Oh, you can get a necklace with this too shall pass in Hebrew. Um, and all of that is under the pretense that this is a scripture, but it's not. <laughs> it's actually nowhere in the Bible. Um, we have lines that Jesus speaks uh, that are things like, I, look, I'm making all things new, or that there's a season for everything. Um, those lines are in there. But this too shall pass actually comes from a really interesting place. And it's interesting that we have sort of shoved it into our uh, sort of mental Bible. Uh, but the way that this too shall pass came around was uh, in ancient Greece, they wanted to throw this competition. Um, and being the, the crazy smart uh, ancient Greeks that they were and the, the nerdy ancient Greeks that they were, they invented things like the Olympics and stuff like that. But this was like a nerd's Olympic. And what it was, was that they wanted uh, their smartest minds, their sharpest minds, their philosophers, their thinkers, um, to write a single sentence. And the competition was just write one sentence and the judges, everyone will have to judge, will have to decide unanimously that this one sentence is absolutely true. So they had to write just a single line of truth. Something so true that you couldn't pick it apart at all, that it had to be exactly the truth. And that line that won uh, was, this too shall pass. Because in an essence, like, that is really the only true thing, is that things are going to change. That world that you've built up so comfy and cozy is going to shift Maybe not in huge ways at first, but it's going, you're going to find yourself at a certain point in your life, I can guarantee it, standing in a new world. 
and maybe it's already happened because you like you can you can think of those things right like that building you just can't drive by anymore and maybe you had great memories in it but now something hurt you so deeply that you have to you take the long way home when you go home because you can't even bear to be near it uh, it's that it's that song that you cannot stand hearing uh, because it takes you right back to that moment that season in life and it's too painful to be in that suddenly this thing that you knew means something completely different but that that's what i would call um negative redemption <laughs> right that's sh that's showing something and and going i don't i don't do that anymore i don't mess with that anymore uh, because of its hurt and its pain in my life so it doesn't get redeemed it just stays off to the side and as we read through the scripture and as we we follow this jesus we're going to see that he's all about creating new worlds that aren't about leaving things behind, but they're about including. And if you're going to leave anything behind, it's going to be that shame stuff and that sin stuff and all the crazy stuff. But the new worlds that Jesus creates is always with like healing. When he comes up to someone who has been blind since birth and said, hey, your faith has healed you, and then they can see again, what kind of a world is that person now standing in? A way better one. It's not negative redemption, it's positive redemption. He's redeeming all things, and he's creating them in new ways. Um, this is going to be the biggest part of our story uh, today, but I discovered as I was researching last week, um, I was trying to figure out just different, you know, different uh, traditions of change and how to deal with it that are outside of our, our scripture or outside of our tradition, maybe, like how, do, how does the rest of the world deal with change? Um, and I found this bestseller, and I might be really late to the party. I actually asked the congregation on Sunday uh, if anybody read this, and a couple hands went up. Um, but I found this book uh, called Who Moved My Cheese? And Who Moved My Cheese is by a guy named Spencer Johnson. Um, and it is incredible. Like, it, there's a children's version of it that I think is actually more valuable than the actual book. The actual book is written, like, from kind of a business perspective. Um, but even just the children's thing, it was so powerful. Uh, and basically what this story tells is it's, it's four main characters uh, and there's a maze. So there are four main characters and they live in a maze. And so that's the context that you get at the very beginning. And it turns out that all these characters are very small. So there's two mice and the mice's names are uh, Skip and Scurry. And then there are two tiny people that are the same size as the mice and that also live in the maze. And their names are Hem and Haw. So there's Skip, Scurry, Hem and Haw. Um, and Skip and Scurry, their, their jobs every day, as well as Hem and Haw, are to wake up. Um, and once they wake up, they put on their running shoes and they start running in the maze in search for cheese. And so the, the metaphor here, that cheese, and I'm sorry if, if the cheese thing is going to get old, it's, it's going to come up a lot more. But uh, <laughs> the cheese is sort of a metaphor for success or, uh, or for whatever we're working the hardest for. And that's not always success. That could be, um, that could be identity. That could be meaning that could be whatever you want to insert in that cheese slot you go right for it because it, it's just the thing that's most important to us so their jobs are to simply go out and run the maze until they can find enough cheese for the day or find a huge pile of cheese whatever it might be uh, but the maze is a metaphor for sort of our life path right like you're running through and we're all working towards some sort of a goal so skip and scurry the mice are a little bit different than the humans in 
in that they don't they act completely off of instinct so skip and scurry will show up and they'll find cheese and this is the way the book would describe it they would take off their running shoes but they wouldn't put them away they would just tie them together and put them around their neck basically just hanging there as a symbol of let's not make this too precious we got what we needed but this cheese is going to go away and as soon as it does they would throw on their running shoes and without doing anything too precious they would just run and go back in the maze right back at it Hem and Haw, however, uh, with their highly intellectual human brains, um, would would not just run through the maze, but would calculate their way through the maze. So they would keep track of, oh, we went left uh, on Monday, and it, it, it led to a dead end. So we're not going to go left this time. We'll go right. And once we go right, uh, we have to remember that this path leads to this path because we were there last March. And they, they'd have like a litany of strategy to get to where they were going, and they would mark their, their dead ends, and they would mark their successes. And one day... Both Skip and Scurry and Hem and Haw arrive at this station called <laughs> Cheese Station C. Again, I'm really sorry if the cheese thing is bugging you. It's it, it's a weird one. But anyway, uh, they arrive at Cheese Station C, and there is a pile of cheese there so large that none of them have ever seen anything like this. Uh, and so they get there, and Hem and Haw's immediate reaction is, oh my gosh, we've made it. Like, this is it. And so they take their running shoes off and get, they don't just take their running shoes off. They leave their old homes behind and they start to build homes in Cheese Station C to be closer to this cheese. It'd be like, we're going to build our lives around this. Uh, and Skip and Scurry, they, they hang out too. But again, they just take their running shoes off and they tie their little strings together and they put it around their neck uh, and they just monitor the cheese situation every single day. Uh, and so, like, a year or two goes by, the cheese is really working out for everybody, everybody is successful, everybody is feeling good, everybody is cared for, everybody has more than enough. And so, Hem and Ha get so comfortable, they even store their running shoes. They put them deep in a closet somewhere in their homes, uh, and they're like, oh, we're, we're not going to need these again. And so, they just they put them back there, uh, and, and a couple of years go by again, and then uh, Skip and Scurry start to sniff the cheese. Uh, as mice do. Again, I don't know how many times I'm going to say cheese in this, but they begin to smell this cheese, and they smell something a little weird. They go like, huh, that's funny. And then the next day they come back, and it's getting weirder. Uh, and then not only that, but they're they're seeing that, uh, that, that the amount is starting to dwindle. So all of a sudden, when they arrived there, they kind of looked at each other, and they said, wasn't this a lot bigger when we got here? And him and Ha completely deny it. They're like, no, it hasn't changed a bit. You guys are crazy. Uh, it's it's exactly the same as it was. It's exactly as big as it was, and uh, it's not moldy. It's it's completely fine. But Skip and Scurry, acting on pure instinct, know better. See, Hem and Hav made this thing precious. They've created their entire world out of it. Where Skip and Scurry have gone, okay, well this was great while it lasted, but now we gotta we gotta find a new world, right? We we've gotta we've gotta move on. Uh, and so they try and convince. Hem and Haw to do that, and they say, no way, you guys are insane, uh, and and they go. And then the next day, uh, they, they pop those running shoes on, and they run right back in the maze, and then the next day, Hem and Haw wake up, uh, and something terrible has happened. All the cheese is gone. All the cheese is gone. And the book doesn't describe uh, if it had been dwindling down or if it just magically disappears. Regardless, it's gone. And Hem and Haw just stare at the, the spot that this success, that this meaning 
that all of this uh, this life-building thing used to exist. And they stare and they, they, they grieve over it. So they, they begin to cry over it. And then, and then uh, Ha um, begins to think just to himself, I wonder if Skip and Scurry had something. I wonder if they were onto something and, and we just couldn't see it. And Ham is completely incensed. And he says, no way. Look, what happened here is not that the cheese ran out or that we did something to it. No, no, no. This is somebody else's fault. And this is where the book gets the title. He says, somebody moved my cheese. So they go on for days and days, and, and Hem becomes increasingly more bitter. Because if you refuse to change, if, if you're standing in a new world, and you get that phone call, and you refuse to operate differently, if you try and bring in those old world ideas to this new world, it's only going to create bitterness. It's only going to create anger. You're going to begin to be incensed because all of a sudden, the stuff that you used to rely on, your staples of life, aren't there anymore. And if you don't change, you're only going to get more and more angry about it. And so Ham just is living in this like extreme anger. And so he, uh, he, he doubles down on his anger while Ha begins to think differently. He begins to think, oh, maybe like something really has shifted and changed and, and I need to look at the world in a different way. And so he goes to him and he says, hey, I'm going to go back into the maze. And Hem says, you're too old to go back into the maze. We, we, we're, our prime is over. You can't do that, right? And, 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 uh, and Ha says, no, I think that we have to. Otherwise, we're going to die here. And, and Hem says, no, like the cheese is gone, but it's going to come back. Somebody took it, so somebody has to bring it back. Don't worry, we're going to stay here. So Ha leaves, but before he does, he writes this phrase on the wall for his friend Hem to hopefully see every day uh, as he walks out and stares at where the cheese used to be. And basically, it just says, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? How, if we asked ourselves that question on a daily basis, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Because that fear stuff, yeah, that's, that's the stuff that really, really holds us down. Uh, I've used this saying a bunch in a sermon, and it turns out I was wrong in a big way. <laughs> but uh, I, I had read, uh, because I'm a Richard Rohr fanatic, Richard Rohr had, had a, um, a quote that said, somebody calculated and added up all the times um, that God speaks do not fear uh, in the Bible or, or an angel does or any kind of messenger says do not fear do not be afraid or anything of that and he said it happens 365 times once for every day of the year and I just thought man that is like the most beautiful thing I've ever heard about the Bible that's crazy that that's true uh, but I looked it up and it's not true <laughs> but it's even better it it actually occurs 366 times, 366. So that means one for every single day of our lives and then just a bonus, <laughs> and then one for nothing at all. God goes out of God's way to make sure we understand that fear has no place in this new world, in this new reality that he's trying to shift. If we don't, if we luck into that fear, we're going to be stuck in that same kind of world that Hem is, where we're just going back to the same thing, wondering where it went. Um, a major example of this is Blockbuster. Do you remember Blockbuster? 
uh, right now, as of this moment of this recording, uh, there is only one blockbuster left uh, in the United States of America, and it's in Bend, Oregon. Um, and there's a there's a Twitter account called the Last Blockbuster, which is one of my favorite follows. But basically, they'll they'll tweet things out um, that only a Last Blockbuster could. Um, like one of their one of my favorites was they tweeted out like um, it's it's a shame what happened uh, to the red box on the corner of fourth and fifth this evening. Uh, and it'd be like, you know, they show a picture of like a blockbuster employee, like throwing down a red box. Uh, and then my favorite one is just a one word and it's just help. Um, <laughs> Cause we all, blockbuster used to be an enormous part of our lives. You would go and you would wander through those aisles, uh, reading the descriptions on the back of the, but there was nothing. Think about that. This is a time where you couldn't just pull out your phone and, and look up a review or watch a preview or anything like that. We were going off of the picture in the front and then whatever small thing, uh, description thing it had, and then we were rolling the dice big time because basically if you got a movie and then you went home, you weren't just going to go back to Blockbuster. You were pretty much just like, buckle up, we're watching this whole hour and a half long thing because we got nothing else to do. It was a, it was a crazy time. And Blockbuster was an enormous company. It was an enormous real estate empire. It was huge. Um, and so basically uh, they got really, really, really comfortable, right? That cheese was huge. It was a huge pile, and they got really cool with where they were at. They were the biggest chain um, in the entire, uh, not just the United States, but the, the world. They had a corner on this market. But along comes uh, this little disruptor, um, well, then it was little, uh, called Netflix. And Netflix uh, decides you don't have to walk into a store anymore. You can actually just order these online and get this. You can order as many as you want, as long as you just mail it back to us. It completely, like, broke our ideas of how you could rent a movie. Uh, and so they begin to grow a little bit, um, and this is before they've really taken off. And, and Blockbuster looks at them and just scoffs. They say, like, well, that's cool, but it's not going to disrupt anything we're doing because we are it. Like, this is the definition, so you can't do anything outside of that. So... Uh, Years go by, and they're beginning to see that this DVD mail thing is, is actually working out. Uh, and so Blockbuster uh, decides they're going to create their own uh, straight-to-home DVD uh, online platform. And so they begin building it, and when the Netflix CEO and founder learns this, he just sees an opportunity and says, hey, this is a great, this is a great time for you to buy us out. So I will give you a deal. Why don't you buy Netflix? This is the CEO of Blockbuster. This story gets really, it's far too much to cram into the sermon, but please look up the exchanges that they had over the years. There's one instance where the Blockbuster CEO literally mails the Netflix CEO a kitchen sink. And I will let you Google that uh, and, and have a ball on your own. Um, but anyway, he says $50 million, Netflix is yours. Don't build your own platform. We have an existing thing here. Just take it. And the CEO says, no way, uh, because in his mind, Blockbuster is just going to create this DVD thing, and then Netflix is going to go away. Like, like they're the they're the head honcho. There's no way this little upstart could possibly take on this behemoth. So, fifty million dollars. Uh, I said mistakenly on Sunday that it was a three point seven billion dollar company, which I don't even know how I thought that that was okay. Uh, it turns out that Netflix market cap is a hundred and fifty billion dollars. A hundred and fifty billion, <laughs> and that's only going up so basically all of the good times you had in a blockbuster 
all of the memories that you have of going there, maybe as a child, maybe as a young adult, maybe as an adult, all of those getting, you know, candy in the aisle and, and, and just popping in the VHS or the DVD, we're not going to remember Blockbuster for any of that. The one thing that will go down in history about Blockbuster is that they passed on Netflix. <laughs> you see, there's this big uh, cultural move, and I think it's even more prevalent in Christianity, um, of being set in your ways. Like, somehow we've made that a value. Like, to, if you're set in your ways, you're, you're honoring yourself in some kind of a way. Like, to be set in your ways is to be good. But I think being set in your ways is an impossible posture for growth and grace. I think when you are set in your ways, you are leaving no room for those two questions to come through, which is, where are you and who told you that? Being set in your ways is an impossible posture for growth and grace. We have to move on. We have to create new ways of experiencing the world because the world is going to change and we can't just let that happen to us. We have to happen with it. You're a human being, <laughs> a human happening, not a human was, not a human is going to be. You're a human being. And Jesus does a really good job of explaining this when he explains that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. This new world, this kingdom, that he's coming to proclaim, that he's creating right in front of them, you can't hold it in the same way you used to hold your old religious beliefs. And that doesn't stop. So the church right now in America, there are dozens of, of ways that they are refusing to move on. And there's new wine. If we believe this stuff, then we have to believe that there's actually a living God who is actually actively at work. And so that means there's going to be new stuff coming all the time. But if we just sit there and we say, no, we are set in our ways, then we cannot possibly make room for growth and for grace. We can't actually live like that. And so I'm scared. I think if the church refuses to do this, and we saw this just last week, if the, the, the church refuses to move forward, it's going to become a blockbuster. <laughs> a bunch of buildings that are now pet stores, or in this case, like there are more. I thought about this. And all the growth and change that's happening in our city in Los Angeles, you go outside, you're seeing scaffolding everywhere. All of these buildings are popping up. It's, it's a constant new town because things come and go here crazy fast. But I thought about it and I was like, I don't remember, I don't think I've ever seen a church building being built. I, I don't see that anywhere. When's the last time you saw a building and they said, what's going in there? And they went, oh, it's a church. I don't think that's happening anymore. <laughs> and the reason is we've got a whole, we're like a blockbuster. We have a whole lot of, we had a whole lot of power. We have a whole lot of power. And so we're set in our ways, but we're not I'm afraid we're not leaving room for that new wine to come in. And it, it takes risk. And for us humans, risk is a very scary word. Fear of the unknown is like the most scary thing in the whole world. There's no way to measure it. And what we often find, though, is that we can be so scared of something that we don't know anything about. But as soon as we step into it, we realize that it might be unpleasant, it might be uncomfortable, but it is nowhere near the world we built up in our mind. <laughs> nowhere near that amount of pain. 
usually when we step into something new, when we actually embrace the new world that's happening, we embrace the change that's going on in our lives, we begin to see that it's, that it's actually not as painful as we had built it up to be before. But that takes an embracing of it, and that's really scary. That author, Spencer Johnson, who wrote the, the book, I got really fascinated with him last week, and I wanted to um, learn more about him. I bought a bunch of his books online. I couldn't find a picture of him, like a single picture. I wanted to show a picture on Sunday. And I could find one picture, and it was too grainy. It was like from like 2003. It was too grainy to even post on the projector. You wouldn't be able to make out who it was. Uh, and I was only able to find one article on Spencer Johnson besides his book reviews or, or things about that. I wanted to know about his life. And his Wikipedia is like, like three sentences long. Uh, and I found one article, and it was an obituary. Uh, and it was in the New York Times. It was a New York Times obituary. And it turns out that um, Spencer Johnson died in 2017 uh, of pancreatic cancer. Um, and in this obituary, it describes that his actual training was he was he was a doctor. <laughs> so he wasn't an author. He, he had an incredibly successful run uh, as a doctor. He had an impressive medical practice. And I was just struck with the fact that they just brushed right past that in the obituary. Like there was maybe one line about the fact that he was a doctor and the whole rest of what we're going to remember Spencer Johnson for was about when he decided later in life to just let that go and to follow his dream and passion of becoming an author, of a children's author. That's the stuff he's being remembered for because he was brave enough to step out of it. I'm not doing a sermon on his medical practice or his bedside manner. I'm doing the sermon on this story that he gave to the world because he was brave enough to face that new world, that unknown, and step into it. And even more than that, I get down to the bottom of the obituary, uh, and it says uh, that when he learned that he had pancreatic cancer, he called all of his friends, both near and far, people he had lost touch with, and he said, I want to spend as much time with you as possible. And then he did the craziest thing. He wrote a thank you letter to his cancer. Nice search for that bad boy high and low. I think the family has kept that. But it was a, a thank you letter in which he thanked his cancer for enriching the quality of his life. For enriching the quality of his life. Can you believe that? That's insane. And so when his friends and family and acquaintances and people he lost touch with would come and they'd spend an hour with him or they'd spend the afternoon with him. They each remarked in this obituary that, that he never wanted to talk about himself or his sickness or his life or his achievements. He just wanted to talk about them and their feelings. And he would say stuff like, how are you feeling right now? And he would flip the script on the, all of that pain and all of that hurt. And he, he used that cancer not to tear down his life, but to enrich the life that he still had. He embraced that new world. And I think life is made so much richer by knowing this too shall pass. Everything is made more beautiful. But it's not just this too shall pass. That's not in the Bible, remember? I think the biblical tradition and this Jesus tradition and in my walk with this crazy Jesus guy, I think the right line there is this too shall rise. 
what new worlds await when we're willing to say farewell to this one? Or to put it like Haw said to him, what would you do if you were not afraid? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for for your um, steadfast and unbelievable commitment uh, to getting rid of the fear in our lives, for creating new worlds for us to step into if we only have the courage. And I pray that you would make us brave. I pray that you'd make us people that, um, that embrace new wineskins and are able to hold all the newness that you are creating constantly. We love you. Amen.